Good morning, everybody. Uh, in my office right behind me, I've got Mrs. Bayes' Bible. Uh, Mr. Bayes asked me to take it home with me. Uh, and I'm going to be thumbing through it just to kind of see her underlines. And I was reminded just like grabbing her Bible, um, which this particular Bible goes back to, I think it was the year 2000 or so. It might even be earlier, maybe, maybe 1990, 32 years. Uh, she's 85 almost, right, Mr. Bayes? And you think about, like when we talk about the Bible, when I get up here on Sundays, there's pastors we preach. Um, we preach the Bible because we believe it's true. Uh, we preach the Bible, we hold on to it, we, we sit and read it in our own homes because we believe that it's, in fact, God's instruction to us, that we see in it the, the nature and the character of God revealed in such a way um, that we get to understand Him more and walk with Him completely. And, and I'm reminded for Mrs. Bayes, who's walked with Jesus for so many years, and Mr. Bayes as well, who've been such a sweet part of our church family, that um, when we talk about your, your faith becoming your sight, that's not just some Christian saying that goes on t-shirts. Like we believe that there's, there's a way in which we experience God in this life, where we read his word in paper form, day by day, seeking to learn more about him. But there will be a moment where we'll see God face to face, and what we know in part now, we'll know completely. And the things that we see almost like through a, a faded, misty glass, we'll see with crystal clarity for all eternity. And the curious part about the Christian life is that we still feel lost here. But for the believer who transitions from this life to the next, what is lost here is gain on the other side. But I want to ask you to join with me, not just now, but praying for Mrs. Bays, for Mr. Bays. Um, you know, God is so gracious and merciful, like even in the quietness of a human heart, when they can't speak anymore, they can't interact with human beings anymore, that God in his word is, is able to make his promises come alive and whisper truth even to the innermost part of someone's heart and soul that we can't even hear. And so I'm praying that even in the moments of silence in these coming days that God would minister to our sister and just join us in praying for her, for Mr. Bays, for the family. And brother, we love you. I'm thankful you're here. Love you a lot. Let me pray. God, we talk about being a family a lot. Uh, we talk about being in community a lot. And it is more than just some program. You have, you have designed us uh, to need one another desperately. And there are times we just don't feel the magnitude of that need. Uh, but we stand now as a church family um, rejoicing that this life isn't it. That this this momentary light affliction, that this little while uh, is, is not where we find our ultimate hope in life. Thank you, God, that you've, you've given us hope for life beyond this one. And we thank you that Mrs. Bayes' trust and joy is found in you. Would you even now, like the quietness of her own heart, would you minister to her through the, the myriad of moments that she has had to survey your word, to learn about you? Would you flood her mind and her heart with the things that she has treasured and hidden in her heart over these years? That she would know your nearness, that your nearness would be her good. And I pray the same for Mr. Bays as well. Remind us of how short this life is. Remind us of how good you are to us, even as we study for this brief minute this morning. We love you. We trust you. We thank you for who you are and the fact that you're trustworthy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen.
All right. Well, we're starting a new series this morning called, uh, called Real Talk, and it's no accident that I talked about the Bible in relation to Mrs. Bayes because uh, this series is going to be addressing what you could argue is at least some of the major objections to Christianity. And this morning, we're going to look at why we can trust the Bible. And so, as we think about, maybe, if, maybe you've even been asked this question, like, why are you a Christian? If someone has ever asked you that question, there's a lot of different ways you can answer that question. A lot of us would answer by way of just personal testimony. I know that Jesus is real because he's changed my life, and there's nothing wrong with that answer. But I wonder how many of us, when faced with that question, at least a part of our answer would be is that I'm compelled by the evidence that the Bible is trustworthy in what it says about who I am and the reality of the work of Jesus. And so what I, what I want to propose to you this morning is that I just want to move the needle to some degree to where as for us as those who trusted in Christ, and I'm not assuming everybody in this room is a Christian, if you follow Jesus in this room this morning, there would be something in your heart that moves to say the Bible really is trustworthy. It's compelling from a, even a historical standpoint that, that these documents, this book that we have preserved by God is trustworthy and we can believe it and in response to it submit our lives to it. And so that's where we're going to be this week. Next week we'll be looking at whether or not science can explain everything. We'll be looking at sexuality and gender, sex, romance, and singleness. We'll kind of be all over the place for about six or eight weeks, and then we'll jump into Second Peter, and it's our pattern to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. But when you think about Christianity, like, ask the question, like, why is this important? Like, why is it important for us to address a question like, can we trust the Bible? Well, maybe one of the answers could be because we ultimately, as believers, we don't just believe in some... Uh, esoteric, like, abstract philosophy. Like, we, in fact, are a people of the book. Like, this particular book, as believers, is our framework. It's our authority for, for faith and for practice in this life. And so, it's, it matters immensely that we have some degree of understanding and grow in our understanding of why it is that we put our trust and our faith in this book as a as a people of the book, we believe God has revealed himself in this book, and it's our supreme, it's our supreme authority. And maybe for some of you this morning, and I'll go back to this at the end of my message, maybe the question for you is something like this. Can I trust this book enough to submit my life to it? Because we're not just talking about an academic exercise. This sermon will be a little bit more of a, a presentation of information than normal but maybe the question is, like, do I believe this book enough to submit my life to it? Because that's the ultimate response to the Word of God being the Word of God. It demands things from us in response to who God is and who He says that we are. If we don't submit to the Bible, we aren't submitted to God Himself. If we become disconnected from the Bible, we become disconnected from God. And for many, the rejection of the Bible is authoritative and historically reliable is really more of an issue of submission than it is of substance. And maybe that hits you this morning. Maybe you've tried to make arguments, maybe been dismissive of the Bible, but maybe when you look at your heart, maybe it's more of an issue that you really don't want to submit your life to it, more than it is an issue of or question of the substance of the book itself. And so I want to journey through just a handful of questions. And one of the things I would submit to you as you think about that question is whether or not your questions are genuine curiosity or interest or just a mere rejection of authority. And so we live in an age where 
Um, someone might refer to this as, as postmodern thought. So kind of a post-Christian mentality, meaning this, is that we can't assume that everybody believes that the Bible is God's Word. We can't assume that everybody believes that there is a God. And postmodern thought is essentially this. There's a whole lot of points of view, including points of view about Jesus. But not only that, because there are many points of view, not one point of view can be right. But the Bible says something different. And so we have to wrestle with how do we address the, the claims that the Bible makes. And my question to you is, is your, is your concern or your questioning based on genuine curiosity to learn more about what God's Word says, or is it just a rebellious lack of submission to the authority that the Bible has in your life? But maybe just ask this question. Like, is it really life-giving to be free from all authority? Is that what we believe? At first glance, you might be like, ah, uh, yeah, that sounds pretty good. But let me just illustrate this in a couple of ways. Like, is that really freedom? Like, in our culture that champions and trumpets personal autonomy, many believe that true freedom means no boundaries. So a guy named Barton Preeb in his book, The Problem with Christianity, speaks this way about the Bible as our authority. I think we'll have this quote up here. He says, musicians, you get that slide? There we go. Musicians are most free not when they strike any note they happen to hit, but when they stay within the strict rules of music, like playing in the correct key. Those who love music say amen. While driving, you are most free not when you ignore the center line, but when you submit to the very strict rule of driving on the right side of the road or the left in some countries. Goldfish are most free not when they jump out of the, their fish bowls and onto the counter, but when they heed the boundaries of the water and the air. All right, makes sense. Ask a skydiver if they experience sweet freedom jumping out of a plane with no parachute. That's not the definition of freedom, having no boundaries or constraints. In fact, Barton Preeb kind of finishes his comment on this. He says, the Bible says that God's rules are not arbitrary laws to ruin our fun. They're the good instructions of our creator for how life works best. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, one of the many places it speaks to the word of God says this, says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And moreover by them is your servant warned. And in keeping them there is great reward. So what I want to do just for a brief minute is the first part of this message. I want, to, I want to speak just for a moment about what does the Bible say about itself? This internal evidence or internal declarations about what the Bible says. And we'll go fairly quickly through this, and then we'll deal with some other kind of external questions. It's very clear in the Bible that the Bible itself and the biblical authors claim the Bible is God's Word. Let me just give you a few examples. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So time and time again, the biblical authors asserted they were witnesses to the things that they were writing. Let me give you a couple examples of that. Second Peter chapter 1. We'll get there in just a handful of weeks. Peter says this, says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming 
of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy, this is verse 21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In 1 John chapter 1, it says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, first-hand encounter concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So for the New Testament authors who are not eyewitnesses, like Luke, their writings were attested to by an eyewitness. And so in Luke chapter 1, he says this. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And we talked about as we studied through the book of Acts that even the Jewish historian Josephus and others commented on, on Luke as being a historian of the first rank. But when we talk about the Bible around the vending machine at work or in our dorm, certainly in the college classroom, the overwhelming perspective is that people question the validity and trustworthiness of the Bible. They might say something like, I mean, it's a, there's some good moral lessons to be learned in there. There's probably some, some degree of truth in it, but it's not really, when it comes down to it, it's not historically reliable or valid or have any claim on me as an individual. And many believe the, the Bible is mythical, culturally regressive, filled with fantasy and tales of old that shouldn't be given any real consideration as history. So here's what I want to do at this point. Is I want to transition and talk about just the, the historicity. What does history have to say about the Bible? About why we can trust the Bible? <clears throat> do we essentially have what the authors wrote, even without the originals? Have the documents been changed over time? And I think it's good for us to concede as Christians, like it's right, it's wise to scrutinize historical ancient documents. That's a, that's a good, wise thing to do and a practice to do in history. But maybe a couple questions. If you're in this room and you're not a Christian, maybe you're skeptical about Christianity, maybe a question for you is, are you willing to apply the same test with the same zeal to all historical documents that you apply to the Bible? Something worth considering. For you as Christians in this room, we should be willing to accept the same scrutiny of the Bible, the same test, the same zeal to the Bible as we do with all historical documents because remarkably the Bible stands tall in its ability to, to stand against those tests. And let me just kind of illustrate this in brief order. I don't have, I have much more notes than I have time to relay this morning. <clears throat> but the reliability of ancient historical documents is determined by the number of manuscripts and the proximity of those manuscripts to the original by way of time. So let me just kind of march through some ancient historical documents. So in comparison to other famous and trusted ancient historical writings, the New Testament possesses what one author calls an abundance of riches of proof that it's reliable. Let me just kind of march through these. Pam, if you got that first slide. Herodotus, a Greek historian, father of history. So just 
keep in mind every single person I'll flash up here. There's really no question from a historical standpoint as to whether or not they're a real person or that their writings are legitimate. That's really not a debate in academic circles. It's notable. So none of these individuals in their writings are questioned as to whether or not they're real or historically reliable. So Herodotus, written 480 to 425 BC, earliest copy, AD 900, a span of 13 years between the time it was written in the, in the, the earliest manuscript. A number of manuscripts, keep your eyes on that bottom line, eight, okay? Eight manuscripts present. Let's keep going. Plato, foundational pre-Christian philosopher. We got Plato up there. <clears throat> Somewhere, Plato, there you are. Written 427 to 347 B.C., earliest copy, A.D. 900, span of time, 1,200 years, number of manuscripts, seven. Keep going, Aristotle. Greek philosopher, written 384 to 322 B.C., earliest copy, A.D. 1100, span of time in between time of writing, earliest manuscript, 1,400 years, number of manuscripts, five. So Caesar and his Gaelic Wars, 100 to 44 B.C., earliest copy, 8900, span a thousand years between time of writing, earliest manuscript, number of manuscripts, 251. All right, we're ticking up. Caesar gets the win at this point, right? 251. Homer's Iliad, 900 B.C. is when it's written. Earliest copy, 400 B.C., span 450 to 500 years, number of manuscripts, 1900. All right, significant jump from the last one. Tacitus, a Roman historian and arguably the greatest Roman historian, 85 to 120. Earliest copy, AD 1100. Span of a thousand years in between. Number of manuscripts, 31. Now just pause for a second. So this is standard measures for the historic reliability of the Bible. And a quick PS too. We're going to create a landing page on our website for all these resources. Don't feel like you've got to scurry to try to get these things down. I'm going to give you a ton of resources to point you to. This is just going to kind of prime the pump. I can't cover everything. There's whole books on just one of these slides I'll show you. But let's go to the New Testament. So take a look at just historically. So written A.D. 40 to 95. Earliest copy, A.D. 100 to 150. The span in between 20 to 50 years. Number of manuscripts, 55 this is that whole abundance of riches as it relates to the historicity of the Bible. And if you include Coptic, Egyptian manuscripts, and other, other languages, there's somewhere around 24,000 manuscripts in, in circulation for the New Testament. 5,500 Greek, 10,000 Latin, 9,300 other languages. So a total of 24,000. That's why the language is used, an embarrassment of riches as it relates to the New Testament. So in addition to that, you talk about the early church, like the first, second century church. And there are so many citations. Like these are called patristic citations. So early church leader referring to portions of particularly the New Testament, which is what I'm going to deal with primarily today, not the Old Testament. So Clement was alive 30 to 95 A.D. Both Clement and Ignatius and Polycarp all connected to apostles. Clement to Peter, Ignatius and Polycarp to John. And so when you take in all of the, the quotations from early church fathers, there's some 32,000 quotations from the New Testament found in writings from before the Council of Nicaea in 325. Why is this important? Well, historians have looked at the number of times the New Testament, as we know, it was referred to in the first couple of centuries. And even if you did away with all of the manuscripts, those 24,000, 
any other shred of evidence, if you just took the citations from the early church, you could rebuild almost the entire New Testament. That is significant within the first couple centuries of the early church. And that should encourage us. Like for some of you, you've, you've studied in this space and maybe this is review for you, even to study in this week. There's so much that you could study. Even if you've been in this space, it should encourage us that there's reason, there's credible evidence to trust the Bible, to trust what God says in his word. And we talk about the canon. Canon just means standard. How do we get the books that we currently have in the Bible? There's a common argument that there's just some sort of arbitrary choice or that Constantine in the fourth century just kind of did this grab of books he wanted and banned the rest of them. And that's just bad history. But that's a common narrative. Because right around the second century, the middle of the second century, we already had 22 of the 27 New Testament books already organically form as a nucleus of the New Testament. So the early church was already using 22 of the 25 books we have today in our New Testament before there was any sort of counsel to affirm what the church was using. And I was listening to Michael Kruger, who's a New Testament um, scholar and does a lot of work in this space with just textual criticism. And he kind of played out the scenario, if you were to go back to the first, second century and interview an early Christian and be like, hey, why did you choose the books that went into the canon? Their response would probably be something like, what do you mean choose the books? Like, we we didn't choose the books. I mean... They're handed down to us by God, and, and we just affirmed them by way of the internal evidence that they were from God, handed down by the apostles. There wasn't just some smoke-filled room, political or religious power grab, like we want these books but not these, and I'll get to some of those other gospels that are really popular to bring up. But early Christians didn't choose books. They were handed down to the church from the apostles, not top-down but more bottom-up. Bruce Metzger, who's also a New Testament scholar, said it this way. He says, the canon is a list of authoritative books more than it is an authoritative list of books. You see the difference between those two things? The canon is a list of books that are inherently authoritative, given by God through his apostles to his people, and not just an authoritative list of books dictated by some political or religious leader. That's a helpful distinction. But let's talk about a couple of these Gnostic these mysterious gospels just for a second. Because you may have had a conversation with someone on college campus. And quick PS, I'll have a book. Uh, hopefully next Sunday I'll have it available, particularly for you college students. It's called Surviving Religion 101 uh, by Michael Kruger. It deals with a lot of this content. Because if you show up in a religion or philosophy class, you can bet you're going to hear some of these arguments. But what about the Gospel of Thomas? How many of you in this room have ever read the Gospel of Thomas? I'm curious. Okay. Um, I'm going I'm to quote you the last line because you read it and it's, it feels something like a book of riddles. It's massively confusing. But here's what the last line of the book of Thomas says. It says, Simon Peter said to them, make Mary leave us for females don't deserve life. Jesus said, look, I will guide her to make her male so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every female who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Everybody's like, I'm going to be reading that this afternoon. That's some wacky stuff. And you think in this gender-confused moment of society, like this might be acceptable. I don't think there's anybody that's going to pick that up and be like, yeah, this kind of makes sense. I can make sense of that. But that's the last line in the book of Thomas. 
But going back to what I was talking about earlier, there's, there's many people that would seek to grab the Gospel of Thomas, not because necessarily they believe in everything in the Gospel of Thomas, because they want to discredit those Gospels in the canon, because they make a claim on someone's life. If Jesus is Lord and he's alive, he demands your life, your obedience, your surrender, right? How about the Gospel of Peter? So in the Gospel of Peter, there's some, there's some interesting things. You get an account for, the least purported account for Jesus walking out of the tomb. But the challenge is, like, you get a, like a supersized Jesus whose head is in the clouds. He's actually followed out of the tomb by the cross, and the cross talks to him. It doesn't take very long to read it and be like, this is markedly different than the Gospels that throughout history have been maintained as those historic accounts. And I'm not trying to be, to be funny, but the fact of the matter is that even from a dating standpoint, the Gospel of Thomas was written in the second century, likely late second century. So Thomas would have been dead for some 150 years. So why would someone put Thomas's name on it? Well, Michael Kruger kind of jokes about this. Well, if, if Haley came up with her own gospel, she wouldn't probably throw it out as like Haley's gospel, she put some famous name on it, like Thomas, who was an eyewitness, and it had like a pseudonym attached to the, the book, and it seems like what happened in the second century. Some of you may have heard of Bart Ehrman, who's a, a philosopher, religion professor at the University of North, North Carolina, and probably one of the most vocal opponents to Christianity in the world today. He's written some 30 books, and a lot of his books related to textual criticism, why he would purport that the New Testament isn't reliable. And on one final page in his book, Misquoting Jesus, he, he lists the top 10 verses that were not originally in the New Testament. Okay, so as you read through your Bible, you've likely come across some moments where there'll be something in parentheses in the footnotes, like this wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. And so there's some verses, there's, there's two sizable chunks in two of the Gospels that, that are missing from the earliest manuscripts. And so he talks about the top 10 things that are missing from our current Bibles. But what's notable about that is all 10 of those, most of them are granted in our Bibles today as like, hey, this might not be in the most original ones, but none of them, like none of the 10 make any difference theologically to the faith of Christians. And most of these supposed errors, and there were scribal errors over the courses of centuries where it was written down and transferred, and, but all of those were, instead of Christ Jesus, it was Jesus Christ and things like that. But even to the tune of 400,000 differences like that, the ministry stand to reason says this, says virtually all of the 400,000 differences in the New Testament documents, spelling errors, inverted words, non-viable variants and the like are completely inconsequential to the task of reconstructing the original. Of the remaining differences, virtually all yield to a vigorous application of the accepted canons of textual criticism. In the entire New Testament text of 20,000 lines, only 40 lines are in doubt, about 400 words, as to whether or not they were in the original. None of them affects any significant doctrine. That is so substantial. Because in this space... There can be an argument kind of lifted up just to kind of propel you away from believing that the Bible is true. But if you take a little bit of time to get just beyond the, the smoke screen, you realize that as it comes to history, the Bible stands alone. The New Testament particularly stands alone. In this case, I'm talking about the New Testament in history as valid 
and trustworthy. Some 99% of our New Testament is pure as it relates to translation over time. A couple different things I'd add as I kind of finish off. And again, we'll, we'll put a landing page on our website for more study. We'll have some books on there, have some websites, some resources for you to delve in more. But one of the things I want to talk about is just the way that God's Word attests to itself and its trustworthiness. And one of the things I would say is just the remarkable unity in the Bible. So a friend of mine, Pastor Tom Marcus, who's the planting pastor for Crossway Wilmington, can you put that 1643 squared up there? This is just a helpful maybe memorization tool, 1643 squared. So Tom shared this years ago. I don't know if it's an original thought from him. I'll give him credit. But it's a helpful way to remember just the, the significant way in which the Bible is 66 books, 39 in the old, 27 in the new, written over 1,600 years, 40 different authors, three continents, three languages. And as you read your Bible, it has this remarkable, this profound unity It really is as you read it and understand it and apply it. You look at the old in light of the new. It is really one unified story centered on one person, namely the Lord Jesus. But this is helpful to remember just this remarkable unity. It's it's developed, written in diversity in the historic and cultural settings it was written, but possesses a remarkable unity. And notably, when you think about Jesus, Jesus said the whole Bible was about him. That everything pointed to him. Like he agreed with the notion that the the Bible is one story centered on him and one quick reference to that. Luke 24, 27 says that Jesus, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's one story, 1643 squared, and I don't have time to really deal with a whole lot of prophecy, but let me just kind of give you a couple tidbits. So Peter Stoner uh, and Robert Newman wrote a book years ago called Science Speaks. There's a couple different layers to prophecy. When you look at the Bible, there's, there's prophecy, meaning there's events that are foretold in the future. And so as you look at someone or a book's capacity to, to foretell the future, and for those events to come true, just like they're stated, there's a probability you can attach to the likelihood that some of, the things, some of those things would come true. So just to put it for you algebra nerds, this will give you life this morning. If the chance of one thing happening is one in M, and the chance of another thing happening is one in N, then the chance of both things happening is one in M t- times N. It just keeps going up, and it's probability. So here's a practical study that they did. 600 students looked at the probability of seven events, just seven events happening in the fall of Tyre, which was a city in the Old Testament in Ezekiel 26. All seven occurred just like the Bible predicts, and the probability of that was one in 400 million. The probability of the fall of Babylon, prophecies in Isaiah 13, 19, amounted to a probability of one in one billion. Same authors looked at the prophecies fulfilled in Jesus's birth, in life, and death, and resurrection. If you could kind of depict this, the probability of Jesus fulfilling all the prophecies related to his birth, life, death, resurrection, was one in 10 to the 17th power. That's 16 zeros. And so these authors equated this to like if you were to take a silver dollar 
You know, one in 10 to the 17th power would be like taking silver dollars and you could line the ground in the state of Texas two feet deep across the whole state. It would be like one person wandering into that mass of, of silver dollars and finding the one that was marked beforehand. That's the likelihood of Jesus fulfilling all the prophecies related to his life, his birth, his death, and his resurrection. Why is this important? Because we need to be able to trust our Bible. Like, we get up here to preach the Bible to us as a church. Not just because it's part of our job description, because it, we believe it changes people's lives. Like, God has revealed himself through his word. He's revealed his son through his word. He's revealed things about us and how we're called to relate to him through his word. And so it's important for us to, to look at why we can trust the Bible. And lastly, I'll close with this. Ultimately, as I referred to at the beginning, one of our answers to why I'm a Christian can be and should be because the way in which the Bible has changed me. The Word of God has changed me. And we could stand up and spend weeks on end hearing stories about how the Word of God has changed us. God, God demonstrates the potency of His Word through His Word. You read it, and as one author says, you find it ultimately that it actually is more reading you than you're reading it. It reveals things about your heart and your life and even the deepest things you don't want to be confronted with. It works and it's alive in such a way that it can only be written by God. Amen. And it's the only book that can do that. You read it, it reads you, you go to it, it meets you with force, with power, with might. And that's what God said it would do in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Family, friends, like the Bible is a living book. The Bible is a living book and it makes dead men come to life. God's word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And it'll sift through everything that you have as a potential argument as to why you don't want to submit your life to it. But at the end of the day, the question then becomes, like, am I willing to? Am I willing to submit my life to this book? The Bible works. God's word will do the work he set it out to do. It will change you. And for some of you this morning, I think the thing I want you to hear, can you put that last slide up, Pam? Just this challenge. For, for many of us, the issue may not be that you can't believe the Bible, but that you won't believe the Bible. In this age of self-autonomy, personal autonomy, we don't want to be submitted to authority. It may be that you bought into one of those smokescreen arguments that when you really look in history, don't hold any water, and it's kept you from believing the Bible. I would just submit to you, don't waste your time, the little time that God has given you. You have questions, pursue those questions to their end. Don't just rely on the History Channel, National Geographic, but look in history. Use the resources at your hands that we'll provide to you. But the issue this morning may be that you can't believe the Bible. Not that you can't believe the Bible, but that you won't believe the Bible. For us as God's people, there's a reason that you know, we come in here on Sundays and we spend time in life groups and person to person reading God's word because we believe it is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. I could joke often about it as a preacher, like I'm Almost, how old am I? 45-ish or something? I forgot how old I was. 44? Okay. 
They have so much life experience. Like we could get up here and tell stories and give you life lessons. Like that would last a couple weeks maybe. Plus we, we can't bring about any change. It's the word of God that will change your life. I remember as a brand new Christian, if I could just bear testimony real quickly to my own life. When I came to faith in college as a 21-year-old, God saved me out of a life of just like self-pleasure and just chasing the world. And when I came to faith and I started to read the Bible, it was like every day I picked it up, like every single page was written for me. So I can't believe the layers of grace. It's like this wonderful layered cake I just can't get to the bottom of. It was so sweet. It was like the honey in the honeycomb because I was still proximate to how needy I was and how broken I was to my moment of salvation. And maybe for some of us, we've forgotten how good and gracious God has been to us. And he's good and gracious still. And his word is still doing his work still. Submit your life to it. Watch it work. Submit your heart to it. Watch it change you. Submit your passions and your desires to it and watch God move you from the things of earth to the things of heaven and give you stability that the world just simply can't offer. God, we, we wonder at the gracious work that you've done in preserving your word. And we thank you so much. Um, we know that without faith, it's impossible to please you. But I also believe that you've been gracious. So Christianity isn't just some blind leap of faith without evidence. That there's reason to believe that the Bible that we get up here and preach every Sunday is trustworthy and true about what it speaks of. God, I pray that there be nobody in this room that leaves with any sense of self-righteousness, thinking that somehow they can stand over your word to judge you, but that we be reminded that there will be one day where every single one of us will stand before you. We'll, we'll either be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus or we'll be clothed in the insufficient rags of our own self-righteousness. May every person in this room, as they go, feel an earnest need to cast themselves upon Christ, to trust him while there's still time, to surrender to him today. And would you do a work through your word that even by faith as we pick it up, to trust in your promises? Would you do a work through your living and active word to judge, to, to train, to correct, to rebuke, and to present us adequate for every good work that you have in store for us? We love you. We thank you for this time to be together. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and stand together. We'll sing one last song.